0: This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. I met Grady Hendrix at Comic-Con, where he was signing copies of his books, including the new one, Paperbacks from Hell, which I enjoyed a lot. So I'm particularly pleased to welcome Grady. Thank you for joining us on uh, on Books Podcast. No, thanks for having me. And uh, you survived Comic-Con. I, or, well, I guess pop popcorn. I was chased out by a zombie, but we'll come to that in due course. You, I think, uh, I'm writing, I'm saying you're in uh, you're in New York at the moment. Uh, we're doing this on Skype. You're in your restaurant, Dirt Candy.
1: Yes, well, technically my wife's restaurant, but uh, if you measure ownership by the amount of blood you've shed for a place, yes, my restaurant also um, down on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. We're going to talk about paperbacks from hell, um, which
0: is essentially, it's an overview of the uh, of the horror fiction boom of the 70s and 80s, which was pretty much a golden age. I want to start off, if it's okay, you, you've sort of got an emblematic book, uh, which you in, in you're using uh, in your introduction, which completely ravishes me, it obviously did the same to you, which is The Little People by John Christopher. Tell me a little bit about that, and then we'll come on to how you came to this subject.
1: Yeah, so The Little People is You know, it's a book I found just based on the cover, because I knew John Christopher from the Tripod series, which in the States was made popular because they serialized it as a comic strip in Boys Life magazine when I was growing up, which was the magazine that you were automatically subscribed to if you were a Cub Scout or a Boy Scout. It was like a total scam. Um, But you always got these serial installations of John Christopher's The White Mountains, The City of Lead and Gold and all that. I never knew that he wrote a book about Nazi leprechauns, which is what <laughs> the Little People is, um, and and not just Nazi leprechauns. Um, they're they're Nazi leprechauns living in a remote Irish castle that's been converted into a B and B, and and the book sort of proves the thesis, um, you know, B and B guests and Nazi leprechauns don't interact well. They don't, they don't have the same needs or wants. And so there's a lot of conflict automatically in that concept. Um, and they're also not Nazi leprechauns. I think it's important to point that out. They are Nazis, but they are not leprechauns. They're, they're homunculi grown from the aborted fetuses of concentration camp victims who've been turned into s and sex slaves and worked in officers clubs uh, servicing the Gestapo. Ah, uh, so it's an important distinction. This has been uh, done so many times, though. These things are unhinged. Some of these books. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. The paperback for the Little People is this beautiful piece of uh, uh, this beautiful painting by Hector Garito, which is it's it's this Irish castle in the background. I mean, I, I guess it's an Irish castle. You know, it, it looks like a castle, uh, and it's bursting open like a pinata and just disgorging. <laughs> This whole avalanche of, of, of tiny little leprechauns wearing, you know, the green shoes with the curls on the end and buckles and the little green hats, and they all have swastika armbands on, and they all have bullwhips. Um, it's important to note that the hardback version of this book, uh, with the cover by Paul Bacon, uh, much more restrained, is a completely white cover, and in the corner there's a tiny little foot just sort of slipping out of view. So I admire the restraint of a man who, in the face of a book about s and Nazi leprechauns, Chooses to paint merely a tiny shoe.
0: Well, you 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 make the point. You 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 describe this Hector Garrido cover as, as the Mona Lisa of paperback covers, which oh, I'm it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: you know you, you sometimes I haven't worried about this in years, but when I started doing the book, I realized people were worried about you know Nazi leprechauns. Um, you know that sounds a little alt-righty. It's a little little racist, to be honest. You know Nazis aren't popular anywhere except the Daily Mail, and um, <laughs> so it's. It's, it's but to me they are utterly beguiling and everyone's been won over by them i mean i haven't ever done this when people don't come up to me afterwards cause i do a live version of the book uh instead of doing readings and uh people come up afterwards and they just want to talk about nazi leprechauns and i think someone who could make a plush nazi leprechaun would be minting money
0: and i don't know why we haven't done it how did you come to this subject
1: how, how did um, horror paperbacks grab you you know, it's funny, I, I mostly didn't read them when I was growing up, because they they scared me too much. You know, I read Stephen King and Clive Barker and stuff like that, all in mass market paperback, but the really gnarly stuff, I, I thought it was dirty and disreputable, and I, I really stayed away. I read a lot more men's adventure fiction and science fiction, but as an adult, um, I, I I sort of found these things, that I would go to stores, and I would see just shelf after shelf after shelf of these mass market paperbacks, and... Um, I didn't know who any of these authors were. I mean, you know, uh, J. J. M. Williamson, and you know, um, uh, you know, all the all these names. I had no idea T. M. Wright and and Barry Wood, and and I didn't, you know, were these good? Were they bad? I couldn't find reviews anywhere online, and I literally just started to read them randomly, and I was writing them up on tour as I read them, sort of like a warning to the curious, almost, you know, like avoid this. This is good. This guy's crazy. This woman is interesting, um, and it. Just sort of snowballed from there and took on a life of its own. Well, you, the, the scope of the book is the uh, the
0: seventies and eighties. There the was a, there was a boom. Why was there a boom? Um, you you sort of you, you trace it back to um, three. Or books don't you that uh, that were
1: published yeah that, that sure got the ball rolling yeah i mean the you know you had rosemary's baby in 67 and then the movie in 68 and then in 71 literally within a month of each other um you had the exorcist came out as a book and then um a book called the other by thomas tryon yeah that's the and one i both-
0: don't know of those
1: no one does. And when I when I talk about them at the, at the live version of the book, I, I'll say, you know, Rosemary's Baby, and the audience will go, mmm, The Exorcist will go, mmm, and they'll say The Other, and people go, huh? Um, no one's heard of it. Thomas Tryon was huge, though, and The Exorcist and The Other entered the New York Times bestseller list the same week, uh, one at number one and uh, the other at uh, number three, and stayed on there together for, for almost 24 weeks. And this... With Rosemary's Baby started the ball rolling, but it turned into an avalanche with The Exorcist and The Other because it suddenly said to uh, publishing houses, there's money here. Horror isn't just this weird little creepy niche. There's a lot of money to be made here.
0: But and, there were a lot um, of little uh, publishing houses as well, little sort of uh, fugitive publishing houses that were sort of draw, leaping
1: on the bandwagon, weren't there? E- exactly. And the first big boom of these books were all sort of knockoffs they were all rosemary's baby knockoffs and exorcist knockoffs the other uh book uh that those knockoffs came a little later with sort of the creepy kid craze which started around 76 when the novelization of the movie the omen became a huge bestseller in the states um but yeah they were all early knock all possession books and you know i'm pregnant by satan books and and even books that had nothing to do with satan um there's a book called uh, The Devil Finds Work, and it is literally about two American antiquarian booksellers who find a small village in the middle of the English countryside and wind up trying to uh, publish a diary they find there. And the cover of it has this, this Satanist in a <laughs> robe with a woman strapped down to the altar raising a big knife over his head, which literally does not happen anywhere on the book. It's like a Dennis exciting- Wheatley thing. Yeah, exactly, and like the most exciting thing that happens in the book is someone hides in a tunnel and shouts at people. Like that—that's really it. But you know, the book sold because Satan sold.
0: Ah, well, yeah, Satan sold. But in a way, though, no, no premise is too wild for for these books. Yes, you got you have got your Satan's and things. But I, 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 I was trying to parody them and say you. There are books that do so, but anything I could think of. There's done. something in your in your book that goes way
1: beyond anything I could suggest. Oh yeah, I mean it's wild how crazy these books get. I mean to think about because the UK had a huge boom in killer animal books, and to think that there is not one but two novels about armies of killer jellyfish <laughs> trying to eradicate humanity. Uh, I mean it's really you know beggars boggles the imagination. Um, you know, jellyfish don't even move under their own power. They just sort of drift. And all you've got to do to avoid them is get out of the water. So, I mean, but two novels that are almost like, uh, you know, um, Guy and Smith's The Crabs and their sort of urgency and You've got, got four or five different covers for novels about killer crabs in this book. Yeah, well, you know, Guyan and Smith, um, you know, he's he's one of you guys. And he published, I think. I think it was five killer crab books because they were so popular. And then in the 2000s, he started publishing more of them. You know, I think he thought, you know, there's a nostalgia value. Killer crabs. England had a huge thing for killer insects, killer moths, um, you know, which really killer moths seems a bit of a stretch. But, you know, in Graham Masterton, who wrote famously a book called The Manitou that got made into a movie in the States, um, He's he wrote some amazing books with really unbelievably weird concepts. There's The Heirloom, which is about a, a possessed satanic chair. Um, you know, you'll never be comfortable again. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it, he wrote a book about and you know, in and in the British writers Nazis figured big. There was someone in the, I think the sixties who said that the three things you could put on the cover of a book have a bestseller in the UK was golf, cats, and Nazis. Um and he to prove his point, he made he wrote a book about uh the cover is a, a cat playing golf with a with a swastika arm. It was Alan on. Curran. Yeah, exactly. Golfing for it,
0: cats with and the
1: cat yes. had a swastika armband on Yeah, That's right. Yes. Yeah, and, and you, there was a huge boom in sort of uh, supernatural Nazis, mostly from British writers. Uh, Masterton had one where someone finds an abandoned tank, you know, long after World War II, they open it, and it's full of evil ghosts. And then there were books about phantom panzer tank commanders. And um, there's a book called The Unholy, where a lake in in, in some small village, I think in like the Cotswolds, has uh, it's possessed by the spirit of Nazism, and, and Nazis come out of the lake. I mean, and it's... It's really popular. So really, I mean, if you can dream it, there's been a book about it.
0: And yet, Nazis are a tiny part. Of it. I mean, the, the genres, uh, the subgenres proliferate madly. And you put a whole section on horror babies, and um, oh yeah, uh, I mean, you, on a section on vegetation that you rather sweetly call uh, "salad of the damned." Yeah. Do, do you have a Do you have a favorite
1: subgenre? The Animal Attacks books, 100%. I they, they, they get a little repetitive, but I love without reservation the idea that animals have just had it with our hijinks. You know, they've had it up to their back teeth. Uh, Nick Sharman wrote a book called The Cats about killer cats invading England, and it's so wonderful because... There is no way he can convince you that cats are anything but adorable. So even when they're even when they're murdering people, you're you're kind of like, oh, they're so sweet. I mean, someone gets buried in an avalanche of cats and suffocates, and all <laughs> you can think is, well, that's so sweet. And then killer dogs—that's a furball dog's- to die for, yeah. Exactly. And and Killer Dogs, you sort of get in this thing where, like, if a dog is attacking a human automatically as a reader, I'm like, what'd that person do to that dog? Why, you know, what'd they do to provoke that dog? Dogs are nice. Um, Killer Rabbits, David Ann's Folly, (laughs) uh, which is great. Um, And I think there's more than one book about Killer Rabbits. Um, Lots of rabies scare books came out of the UK, which, which I love because inevitably it's always about some posh upper class wimp who smuggles in a dog from france and french dogs french poodles french mutts french bull terrors if it's french it's got rabies and it's going to wipe out uh, the united kingdom
0: we're going to have to get down and dirty and ask how many of these hundreds possibly thousands of books are actually any good
1: well you know i was surprised at how many were and they're two kinds of good right they're books that are so crazy that they're fascinating. I mean, someone like William John Stone who wrote Toy Cemetery about a town that's haunted not only by two battling armies of evil reanimated toys but also features a toy factory in the middle of the town run by an obese pedophile who films satanic kitty porn snuff films there and there's a, a possessed house where a ghost werewolf lives on the edge of town it's one of those books where just it gets crazier and crazier this and is crazier you couldn't parody them Exactly. Um, and, and everything John Stone wrote is like that. He's also obsessed with anal sex. So his books always work into a lot of anal sex. Um, but then you have books that are legitimately really brilliant. I mean, Michael McDowell, he's probably best known for writing the screenplay for Beetlejuice and for The Nightmare Before Christmas. But his stuff is really fantastic. He wrote a series of six books called The Blackwater Saga about a southern family that uh, marries into a family of swamp monsters. And it's really moving and really incredible. Um, Barry Wood wrote a book called Tribes, which is this really gorgeous novel about immigrant communities in New York and also a berserk golem going crazy on Long Island in 1979. Um, uh, There's a book called The Auctioneer by Joan Sampson about... um, a, uh, a small New England town that sort of like becomes corrupted by this auctioneer who starts auctioning off their furniture, their land, their children. Um, it's you know one after the other. You really just start to find. I would say for every six terrible books I read, there was one that was really uh, just fantastic and and made me sort of angry that it had been forgotten. Um, you know, some really great stuff that we've just lost. A lot of which was written by female authors, um, and there's always been this sort of idea that um, horror is a boys' genre. You've got Stephen King, and it's gory and all this, but there are a lot of great female authors who are really prolific: Barry Wood, um, Elizabeth Ingstrom, uh, th- that have sort of been written out of the narrative. And so it was really, it was really an honor to rediscover their stuff.
0: Well, one of the problems, though, I mean, one of the way, one of the ways I n- knew that paperbacks from hell was a success is it, it made me want to read some of them but tracking them down i mean i i looked for the the nazi dwarves one and um, <laughs> if, if you can find that even on ebay it's going to cost you 100 pounds um yeah and 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 finding some of these things is 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 actually kind of a mission
1: it is and you know it's one of those things where i feel terrible because i know that paperbacks from hell sort of drove up the online price of a so lot so of it's these. your fault it's kind of my fault. I feel bad about it. Um, but also, it's one thing where it's kind of nice because it re- it uh, reaffirms or reasserts the importance of brick and mortar. Like anywhere in the U.S. when I go on a book tour, I always go to their cheap paperback swap shop. And, you know, you just find so much gold in there. I was just in Missouri in Springfield, which is like 200,000 people. And the pe- the library hosting me took me to this paperback shop that was just falling apart, man. This thing was like a giant pile of just rotting paperbacks, where I found um, Howard Hunt, who was one of the Watergate conspirators. Yes, that's right. He wound up writing uh, supernatural horror paperbacks. He, he he was a novelist before
0: he went into uh, into the uh, spy business. He was uh, yeah. uh, um, He was one of
1: those contemporaries of uh, Gore Vidal and that crowd. Yeah, and you know, I had had I'd never seen any of his stuff before, <laughs> and there it was sitting there, you know, dollar a copy. So so I know online it's really hard to find this stuff, but if you can get out a paperback swap shop man these things are still out there going for a song so what happened after about 20 years or 25
0: years the the the, the boom is over there's a, there's a bust in it and and they and, and, it, and in fact, what, what happens is horror becomes like a, um, a children's genre. You've got your R.L. Steins and your Christopher Pike's, sure. and, and, and then that appalling Twilight thing that Stephanie Meyer did and the, the, uh, oh, no, the subliterate True Blood stuff that Charlene – it became a children's genre and where it had been really
1: hardcore, sanguinary and, and shocking. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, a and also, you know, horror in general, like horror films were moving more towards films for children. Um, you look at the first big hits like Rosemary's Baby and uh, The Exorcist in film, and those are movies about parents dealing with their children and, and issues of faith and all that. And then in the 80s, you get into movies about kids going into the woods or somewhere they're not supposed to be getting knocked off one by one. And 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 they don't really have any big themes except maybe sex is dangerous, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so it really, horror was becoming more geared at kids across the board. But the other big thing that happened, well, two things is, one, in publishing. Publishing was just consolidating, you know, and there were just too many of these horror novels that had been made. A lot of the small publishers that you mentioned got gobbled up by the big publishing houses, which then started their own paperback imprints, doing paperback original horror novels, and they really just glutted the market. I mean, there was just too much product out of there, and The idea took hold that horror novels were cheap and disposable and interchangeable. Um, And then the other thing that happened is horror novels, you know, serial killers got huge after Silence of the Lambs in 91, after the movie won all the Oscars. And serial killer novels really sparked this sort of race to the bottom. And so you wound up having these books which were really, and I I hate to say this, but just became so misogynistic and so gory. I mean, they really are... um, you know, you, you read a book like, like uh, Good Night Moon, and it's like, it, it's simply a catalog of all the horrible ways you can murder women. Um, and, and it really tarred horror with this brush that these were really sexist, all those pornographic books. Um, it was an unfair, uh, you know, entirely unfair, but also somewhat warranted, given some of what was coming out. We have to have... a
0: bit of a discussion about the covers your uh, paperbacks from hell is sumptuously illustrated you've got hundreds of of uh, beautifully reproduced covers of, uh, of of horror paperbacks and they are gorgeous uh, oh they're amazing often, often erotic seldom pornographic um and uh, often deeply disturbing but absolutely beautiful i mean you, you could see how that that might be sufficient just just the covers
1: is enough Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things, besides finding authors and being able to sort of bring them back to light, like Ken Greenhall and Elizabeth Ingstrom and stuff, the real honor of this book was meeting these artists because throughout their life, they put a lot of emotion into these paintings. They put a lot of care into these paintings, a lot of technical work into these paintings. And it's not their fault that they were manufacturing them for a disposable industry, right, where the cover's here today and the books in the remainder bin tomorrow. And Finding these artists and, and, and naming them, because oftentimes the publishers didn't want them to become popular, so they would blur their signatures on their paintings or cry yeah, A lot of them out. never made any money, did they? Oh, they made very, very little. I mean, famously, Roger Costell, who did that amazing Jaws cover for the paperback of Jaws uh, that you've seen everywhere. I mean, that's on the side of cups and, and, and you know toys and games and all these things. He made $10,000 for that painting uh, because it was work for hire. Um, you know, it's, it's he just, he, his name got out there some, but it really was, well, Even you know, then, none of, these artists are, none of these artists is a household name, really. No. And, you know, and what happened was towards the end of the boom, a lot of them jumped ship to romance novels because that was, they were still using, uh, painted covers instead of, like, going purely digital. And, um... And then most of them these days, very few still do covers. Um, most of them do children's books or other kinds of illustration.
0: You've had a go yourself as well at, the, at, uh, at yeah. horror, have you? you? You wrote a, a novel called Horror Store and one called yes. My Best Friend's Exorcism. I did like Horror Store. It looked so marvelous, which is in keeping with, with you know, your approach in Paperback from Hell because um, it looks like an Ikea catalog and it's a, it's a horror story set in, to all intents
1: and purposes, a, a big furniture store. Yeah, and, you know, that's one thing. I work with Quirk, which is a smaller publisher, but they do an amazing job with the design. And they let me get involved with the design and go back and forth with the artists and things and the book designers. So we kind of feel like, you know, these books, if someone's going to go through the trouble of having a physical book, it should look pretty great. You know, it should, there should be a reason to get it instead of the e-book edition. Um, I couldn't agree we, more. So we really try hard to put in a lot of Easter eggs and a lot of just intense design.
0: Well, I think Quirk have done you proud. And Paperbacks from Hell is £20 in Britain, $25 in America. Grady, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me,
1: man. I really appreciate it.
0: That was the Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com. And Tim can be contacted on tim at
1: green-shoot.com.